Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Why don't you guys pray with me? God, you are beautiful and incredible, and I'm so thankful that we can stand firmly on your promise that you are with us. And man, I ask this morning that you would just help our hearts be aware of that and attentive uh, to what we discover in Scripture as we look at the teachings of your Son. We love you so much, God. Amen. So as Doug said, we're kicking off the series, Jesus' Greatest Tweets. Technically, I have a Twitter account, kind of technically in the same way that I still have a MySpace account somewhere out there in the ether. I'm getting mocked by this crowd down here. Um, really, my only interactions with Twitter... Twitter that, should we start again? And That's... Uh, all right, start again. Cut that out of the video. You can just like bleep that out. I don't even know. Were any of you here a few years ago for the dots on top, holes on the bottom comment? Anybody remember? No, it's one of those awkward. Okay. So Twitter, it's really, it's great, right? Um, Has a W in there. It's perfect. So my only real actions with Twitter uh, nowadays are mostly just on like a meme or joke level when you see people post those ridiculous tweets that politicians shouldn't have their phone late at night that they're tweeting out. Um, But some of the other ones are that there are some leaders out there, you know, some of those like pro-pastors who use their Twitter a lot, and they drop those like truth bombs that in 280 characters or less, they just deliver something that you're like, oh man, that's really good, you know. Um, Some other leaders in our world, they do that. They craft this one or two sentences that you're just like, man, that's good. Over the next few months, we're going to be looking at this big sermon that Jesus preaches called the Sermon on the Mount. And the way I see the sermon is it's essentially this, this like tweet after tweet of truth bombs that just deliver something so poignant and so true and, and that just kind of cuts to you in like one sentence or less. And that's what we're going to be doing as we kind of unpack this uh, sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and if you don't know, this is found in Matthew's chap- Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a background as to kind of what's going on before we get to Matthew chapter 5, so you can kind of see where this lands in the context of Jesus's ministry as described by uh, the book of Matthew. So the start of the book of Matthew, Jesus is born. Uh, we just, you know, spent some time talking about that in December. And he starts to grow up. And eventually there's this guy named John the Baptist who starts going out and preaching and saying, you know, kind of saying, Jesus is coming. This is going to be awesome and huge and all this stuff's going to happen. And then eventually Jesus shows up and John baptizes Jesus. In the book of Matthew, right after his baptism, Jesus like pieces out and goes out into the wilderness uh, for 40 days and spends 40 days hanging out in the wilderness in solitude, and he doesn't eat 
for the whole time. I don't know if any of you guys have tried fasting. I know intermittent fasting is kind of a thing nowadays. Um, if you've ever tried fasting, you know that it's it's hard. Like, it's like, you know, we're like, oh, you should read your Bible. You should pray. You're like, ah, I could do that. You should fast. It's like, ah, you know, well, you know, that I, I may be out on this Christianity thing. But um, Jesus goes out and does it for 40 days. I've never even come close to doing it for 40 days. I can't imagine how brutal that would be. Funny thing is in the book of Matthew and Luke, when they describe it, they say, and he became hungry. And it's like, wow, thank you so much, Matthew. We were unaware that after 40 days of not eating, you might be a little bit hungry. So Jesus is out there fasting, praying, getting ready for something. And then out of that, he starts what we often call his public ministry. I mean, I'd assume that Jesus probably had some kind of ministry growing up, but he now goes public with this thing. And we see that he starts preaching. We're going to come back and look at that a little bit later. He starts preaching. Then he gets this squad of these guys called the 12 disciples. Some of you guys know about this. You've been in church for a while. Jesus likes to think small. He basically builds a small group. He's like, this is my crew, and we're going to do ministry together. There, arguably, there were other followers in that too, but this was kind of like, this was the crew that was kind of leading the pack. He calls these disciples, and then at the end of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus starts healing people miraculously. He's doing miracles, and people are like, whoa, what's going on? This guy just like tells sick people to not be sick anymore, and boom, they're not sick anymore. So Jesus is getting a bit of attention, and then we end up in Matthew chapter 5. Now, Jesus has a few discourses in the New Testament, kind of longer speeches where he kind of delivers a talk or a sermon or a message or what have you. The Sermon on the Mount is like, it's probably one of my favorite portions of scripture. And it's probably one of the most like tweetable, recognizable uh, sermons that Jesus delivers. It's this awesome thing that spans these three chapters. The whole three chapters, P.S., if you don't know, Jesus didn't actually deliver it in chapters. He just talked. But the whole three chapters is just him talking, except for the first two verses of chapter 5. So let's take a look and see what's going on. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So at this point, Jesus is kind of getting a bit of a following. You know, people are starting to talk about this Jesus guy. A, he can do miracles. He's doing all these crazy things. B, his teachings are like revolutionary. People are like, man, what's this new teaching that we're hearing? What's this guy talking about? He's challenging some of the mindsets that we've had before. I want you to understand that the culture that Jesus was speaking to wasn't a bunch of people that showed up for church on a Sunday morning. And it wasn't people living in kind of a 21st century post-Christian worldview like we live in. What's going on is he's in a, he's in a culture that's like steeped in spirituality and theism. People believe in God and spirituality for the most part at this point. They're the Jewish people who are steeped in kind of, you know, like a thousand or so years of kind of their Jewish tradition and laws and how they've been working out scripture and they're trying to figure that out. Really devout a lot of them. Then they're living in this place that's overtaken by this Roman empire that kind of has some Greek influence. There's this Greco-Roman kind of paganism going on, all these different kinds of gods and concepts around God. And so there's a lot of talk about religion and spirituality. A lot of times a sermon's been called Christianity 101, and people say, well, it kind of lays the baseline and the foundation. 
I think it goes more than that. I think the baseline and the foundation is something we call the gospel, and we're going to be talking about that a bit this morning. That's the baseline. What Jesus does here is he starts telling people, this is how the gospel actually works itself out in a bunch of aspects of your life. And what he does, interestingly, and you're going to see over the next few months, is he takes things from Jewish teaching and Jewish thought, even things from Scripture itself in the Old Testament, and he, he takes them and he challenges them and says, this, then, if I am the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's dying on the cross for people, we'll talk about that a bit later, if he's doing this thing and you're going to follow him, this is how you actually work it out and live it out in your life in a bunch of these different areas. It's not comprehensive. He doesn't cover every situation, but he covers a lot of stuff. And same with those who are following paganism. He starts to challenge a lot of ideas and mindsets kind of around religion and spirituality and says, no, guys, this is what it actually looks like to live out the gospel. And this is what we're going to be looking at in these three chapters over the next few months is kind of how we wrestle with that. Because even though we're not the culture that Jesus first spoke to, even though we're in a pretty different place, I think that a lot of the ideas and mindsets that humans have often struggled with, with, well, how does religion, how does spirituality, how does God actually affect my life, are ones that we still continue to struggle with. And we try to lean to make it work out best for ourselves. And Jesus, is, I think, is going to challenge a lot of those ideas and a lot of those ideals. So Jesus, it says, he sees the crowds. He's getting kind of popular in a good way, in a bad way, I guess. Uh, he's getting a lot of attention. He sees the crowds, and he goes up on this mountainside to start, preach, preach, to start preaching to them. And people have different ideas about maybe why he went up on this mountainside, hillside to preach. You know, some are like, well, you know, maybe he's just trying to withdraw from the crowds and kind of just have a bit of a quieter place to speak to people. Some people would say, well, maybe he's just trying to have a bit of a vantage point because if there's a crowd, you know, this way he has a bit of an elevation. He doesn't, he's not blessed with the Britney Spears mics that we have nowadays. And so he's kind of trying to project that way. Maybe he just thought, well, this is nice and scenic, good preaching photo ops, beef up my LinkedIn profile, get some more speaking engagements. I don't know. But Jesus pulls up on this mountainside. Now, we don't know for sure what mountain this is, but for the past like millennium and a half, there is a hill in the Middle East that has been kind of celebrated as a site of this sermon, and it's called the Mount of Beatitudes. It's on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the most interesting thing about this hill, and maybe you don't care, but very interesting, is that the top of this hill is 25 meters below sea level. So if you could imagine where we're at right now, well, you guys, I'm like another meter higher, but where you're at, if you go 670 meters down, you'd be at the top of this hill that arguably maybe Jesus is preaching his sermon from. I don't know if that's interesting to you. Pretty interesting to me. So Jesus is up on this mountainside. He sees the crowds. And it says that he's, his disciples come to him. He starts teaching them. So as we journey over the next few months, I just want to give you a bit of a picture of kind of what this sermon might actually look like. Because what I imagine is his disciples are kind of the inner crew. They're like the church goers. They show up all the time. They're like, yeah, we're interested. We want to know more. And they show up and they're sitting close and they're probably maybe taking some notes or they got the FBC app, uh, you know, filling in the blanks. And they're like, yeah, we're interested. We want to know more. Then probably there's this next layer of people who are like, well, you know, we've kind of heard, kind of interested, still just kind of in the free sample phase, you know, like what, what is this about? And they're, they're probably the next layer. There's probably another layer that's kind of like the, well, I have no idea. I've heard some things. You know, for me, I don't know. 
we don't have it in Lloydminster, but if you guys have been to like a bigger city, you know what buskers are? This is kind of like me with buskers, right? Because I'm like, wow, they're like pretty good musician, pretty good magician, but when they hand the bucket at the end, I want to be able to just peace, right? And so these, these are probably the next layer of people who are like, well, I don't want to commit to anything. I don't want Jesus to like look at me and see me here, but kind of listening in a bit. And then there's probably just some random people from the crowd who kind of hear some words as they go and they're not sure. And that probably represents some of us this morning. A little bit different. We show up on Sunday mornings. We've got kind of a seating arrangement, assigned seating. And we, we, we listen and we maybe try to learn some stuff. But we're all in a different point in our spiritual journey where it's like, you know, am I really listening to this or am I kind of just checking it out? And wherever you're at this morning, I hope that Jesus' words will mean something to your heart as we unpack them and that they'll help you continue to take those steps and towards being part of that inner circle that's maybe a little bit more interested in this thing. It's called the Mount of Beatitudes because Jesus starts off this sermon with this list of things called the Beatitudes. If you've been around for a while, read scripture, you maybe know what that is, but it's this list of kind of eight things that Jesus says, blessed are, fill in the blank. Beatitudes really means like blessings or kind of a deep joy or happiness. And these Beatitudes are pretty interesting because he says, blessed are, and then he says something that normally we wouldn't equate with blessedness. You know, he's going to start this with saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Usually if I would go up to someone and say, hey, describe being truly blessed, people aren't going to be like, well, if I'm like mourning or if I'm poor in spirit, then like I know I'm really blessed, right? Jesus' teaching here is really upside down. And one more thing about the culture he's preaching to as well, because it's a little bit different, and then we'll actually hop into the passage. Jesus is speaking to a culture that is steeped in like an honor-shame system. We still kind of have that in our world nowadays. North America, not so much. But he's preaching to people where their state, financially, relationally, health, all of that, how they're doing vocationally and all that, would be a representation of the honor or shame that they would receive in their culture. And most people would hear this teaching of Jesus saying, blessed are you when you're low, and be like, no, I'll be shamed by my culture. Now, it's not exactly the same in Canada, but I would say that's one of the reasons we often struggle with Jesus' teachings. He'll say something, and we're like, yeah, but like, what will my friends or coworkers or family think? These are hard teachings. They're pretty upside down. But let's take a look at it. We're going to kick it off. And what I want to offer this morning, as we look at these three first, first verses, these three first tweets in this sermon that Jesus drops, is I want to talk about three steps to blessedness. If you've got the bulletin or the app notes, there's some stuff there. But three steps to blessedness. We often equate blessedness with our own idea. This is Jesus, I think, equating three steps to true and profound and real blessedness in following him. He starts off, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Hashtag blessed. Um, and so Jesus starts off this sermon, and I want to look at these three verses separately. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? You know, I've heard this passage talked about quite a bit in the church, and a lot of times when people talk about the being poor in spirit. They kind of dance around it, I find, and they, they kind of represent it in different ways. Sometimes equate it to like our physical and mental, like emotional state. Like, oh, if you're poor in spirit, you're, you're kind of sad, you're struggling with stuff. Maybe you're actually financially poor, you're going through some stuff. And I, I think there's something way deeper and tied to the gospel here. If you're kind of new to this whole thing with the gospels, when I use that word, it just means the good news that despite, as people, despite the fact that we're selfish and, and we have brokenness in our lives and we choose things that aren't the best for ourselves or others, we don't choose to follow God naturally. The good news is that God offers grace and forgiveness through his son, Jesus, giving his life on the cross for us. And, and so oftentimes 
we kind of equate the good news of this verse to like, oh, if you're lowly, then, you know, Jesus cares about you. But I think this is going on to something so much deeper than that, this, an idea of spiritual poverty. And I think we often live in denial of this. Anybody know people who you just know, they live in denial about stuff? No, no one? Okay, it's probably you then. Um, but, <laughs> like, I've never done it, but, okay. But have you met those people that just live in denial of their, like, everyone knows the reality. It's like, this is what's actually going on. This is what's up. And they're just, like, blind to it. People are giving them advice. You're trying to stage intervention. And it's just it's like, no. We often do that with, like, I, I find for myself, for example, I do that with, like, physical health, right? Oh, I'm not feeling that good. And it's just like, if someone were to genuinely sit down with me, it's like, well, tell me what you've eaten, how much you've exercised, and how much you've slept for the past two weeks. I'd be like, oh, okay, well, maybe. But, I, you know, I deny that because it's like, well, that couldn't be it. I'm, I'm just, like, sick because, you know, circumstances. You know, we do that with our finances or different relationships and stuff like that. Sometimes there are external forces that we can't control, but we live in denial that what we do actually creates the reality we're in, and I think we often deny that reality. So when I think of someone being in denial, you know, I think of this one guy I knew when I was young, and this guy's, I'm not going to say his name, but this is like, you know, I know I've struggled in my own life, but this guy was like the classic denial guy. And so I'm going to show you a picture. I actually, um, so I'm the guy in the middle there. So if you can believe that, that's like 20 years ago or 20, you know, so um, that's, that's young Ryan with, those are not frosted tips, just to clear the record. They were streaks. That's, I think that's better than frosted tips. They just grew out a bit. Okay. So wearing some corduroys down there, you can't tell. But anyways, great picture. This is me at Bible camp when I was like probably 13, 14 years old. Um, and the guy on, I'm the one in the middle, not the one with the long hair over there. I didn't just have it bleached, but um, the guy on the left there, he's my cabin leader for the week. And actually that week, uh, I lived a pretty li- different life back then. That week, I remember, I with under with with one of my friends, we snuck into the trees, and I gave myself a piercing, and then that my cabin leader found out and made me take it out. And he told my parents, I can't believe it. But anyways, <laughs> this week after this, my family and I were going on holidays to BC. We'd do that every summer. We'd go to the lake. We'd uh, go wake. I love wakeboarding, and. Um, I'd always take a friend, but this summer I didn't have a friend. Well, I had friends. I just didn't have a friend to go. I promised I had friends. But anyways, I met this guy that we're holding here at camp, at Bible camp. And I was just like, man, I like this guy. Like, I should invite him. So I invited him to come to BC with us. And I was so excited because when I was talking to him, I was telling him, I was like, man, we go wakeboarding every day. I love wakeboarding. And he told me, he's like, yeah, I wakeboard all the time. And he started telling me about all the stuff he could do. He's like, I can do 540s, backflips, like all this stuff. And I was like, man, this is going to be so rad. Like, we're going to be ripping it up. This guy's like a pro, apparently. The crazy thing is this. We got out to BC. You can get rid of that. It's probably distracting. Then Say bye, young Ryan. But Okay, we get out to BC. We get out on the water. I go for a rip on the wakeboard, and then it's this guy's turn. And he hops out in the water at the wakeboard, and my dad hits the throttle, and he starts to get up and just falls. And I was like, well, that's weird, but I don't know, whatever, give him another shot. And he's like, oh, whoops, you know. And he goes to get up again, and he falls and falls and can't get up. And every time we'd circle back, he'd be like, oh, like I'm rusty, I haven't wakeboarded. I'll tell you something, you can do backflips on a wakeboard, you can get up for the rest of your life on a wakeboard. And he just would not admit that he was lying to me about this thing to make himself seem cool. One, one really quick redeeming thing. He actually, I have that picture because he messaged me like last year on Instagram. He found me and he sent me this picture. He's like, you know, I've thought about it for like the last two decades. And he's like, Ryan, I'm so sorry. I was lying to you about my age that whole summer. He said he was a year older than he was. 
And I'm like, well, I forgive you. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I wasn't like an older girl that you were trying to like date or like I wasn't <laughs> trying to card you to sell you alcohol. So I don't, okay. I don't know what your end game was there, but it's really cool. He apologized. It was like been weighing on him for like two decades. I'm like, oh man, like I kind of forgot. It was crazy how like insistent he was. Oh, I'm not used to this wakeboard or like, oh, BC water. or I, I don't know. Just like whatever. My old Vietnam War injuries are kicking in, but just stuff. And I'm just like, dude, you can't wakeboard. And I think this is what's going on here is Jesus isn't saying blessed are the poor in spirit. Like if you're spiritually poor, if you're spiritually impoverished, you get the kingdom of heaven. That's not the message because like spoiler, all of us are living in spiritual poverty. All of us have chosen sinfulness and selfishness rather than following God. This is our helpless state. It's sad and it's sombering, but that's what it is. But the good news is, is that if we're willing to come to terms with the truth and stop living in denial that we struggle with this poverty of sinfulness, this spiritual impoverishment, that God can set us free from that, that God can actually make ends meet for us. So I would say the first step to spiritual blessedness this morning is to admit your spiritual poverty. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, and for thousands of years, people who are spiritually impoverished, who on their own cannot correct the wrong, the sinful desires in their life. But if we will come to terms with that, if we will say, yes, Jesus, you're right, I am spiritually impoverished, please, by the richness of your grace, fill me. Then he says, welcome home. Come on in. This kingdom is for you. This is a tough step, right? We like to live in denial because it feels better. We're like, oh, no, I'm not spiritually poor. But this, the thing is, is it's, it's so much more liberating to just admit that. In one of Jesus' teachings, he actually says, the truth will set you free. So much, it's, it's crazy how much of our lives we spend trying to navigate around truth rather than just taking it head on and owning the truth. It's like we're scared of truth. If we just take it head on and respond to that, then we can find freedom in who Jesus is. And when we admit our spiritual poverty, it's our first step towards spiritual blessedness. Verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I mean, this is the beatitude that I struggle with the most. It's like, describe blessedness. If, if you ask that to someone, they're like, oh, you know, like mourning, you know, you'd be like, uh, you're crazy. Um, but this is what Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And why is this? A lot of times I think we read verses in isolation. Think about what it's coming after. Jesus is saying, you guys are living in a state of spiritual poverty. You're bankrupt on a spiritual sense. He says, now it's time to mourn. So often with our sin, I think we're just deflective and defensive. I think we often idolize our sin. We don't only just justify it, but we like idolize it. And I, I don't know if you've ever been like in one of those situations at like a camp, like a Bible camp or like a small group or a youth group or something. When someone goes to tell their story about like Jesus changing their life, maybe their testimony or something, and the story seems to be more about themselves, the sinner, rather than about the hero. You know, it's like no one wants to watch the movie that's just like a documentary of the princess trapped in the tower while the hero's out there fighting the bad guys coming to save her, right? They want to watch the documentary of the hero who's valiantly on the way to save the damsel in distress. So often we make ourselves the center of the story. We, we, I've heard these testimonies or stories where people, it's like more of a story about their sinfulness and, oh, I did this and I was this bad. And, and it's just like, that's not the point. 
The point is that your sin is actually a negative thing, and Jesus showed up and did something incredible despite your brokenness. Our entertainment, our thoughts, so much of it is bent towards sin, and you know we justify it. And, and the reason we celebrate sin, and the reason we justify it, and the reason we make light of it is because we love it. We love our sin. And that's the real problem. That's why the gospel is such good news. It's because we are enslaved by something that we love, we want, we desire, even though it's not what's best for us. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, I can set you free from that. But it requires us to mourn our sin. When we're actually willing to mourn our sin, to recognize that our spiritual poverty is an issue, that's when we start to engage with the grace of the gospel, the good news that Jesus can forgive us of our sins. Admitting your spiritual poverty in and of itself is meaningless. It's the first step to admit that you have a problem, but then what do you need to do about it? It's like this, this type of mourning is important because if you, you know, like have a fin- broken financial situation or broken relationships in your life or whatever, you can admit that but you actually need to become discontent enough with it or disgusted by it enough or unhappy with it enough to actually take action. And that's, this is the type of mourning that Jesus calls us to, not a type that like beats us up and makes us harbor guilt our whole lives, but, but a type of mourning that says, I'm not okay with my spiritual poverty and I need something to happen. When Jesus shows up and starts preaching in Matthew 4, like I referenced earlier, this is the whole sermon in Matthew chapter 4. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's his whole sermon. Some of y'all are like, Ryan, why can't your sermons be that short? And I'm just not, I'm just not that good, okay? I'm not like, Jesus, after that, does miracles? I don't have that. So anyways, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is saying, I brought my kingdom. I'm calling you guys to repent. Repentance means recognizing your spiritual poverty, owning it, saying, yeah, like I'm broke. I'm broken. And then being willing to mourn that estate rather than being like, I'm broken, but you know what? It's all good. We try to comfort ourselves, find our own comfort by defending it and saying, well, yeah, I might struggle with sin, but I'm not as bad as that person. I might, I might have messed up, but like that, you know, it's because of this, it's because of these external circumstances. No, it is because of our brokenness and our propensity to stray away from God that we continue to struggle with sin. This message, you might be here and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and maybe you're thinking, oh yeah, like this is the type of thing you need to know before you become a Christian. This is the type of thing that we need to, these are the basics and the fundamentals of what it means to follow Jesus and embrace the gospel is that we need to live life lives of repentance, where we acknowledge that even though we're following Jesus, even though we've embraced him as the leader of our lives, we still continue to struggle with the spiritual poverty that tries to grab onto us and say, Jesus, I admit that this is an issue, and I mourn that. I repent. I want to turn away from that. Repentant means to change your mind, to, to apologize, to accept God's forgiveness, to turn away from it and say, God, I want to be filled with the richness of your grace rather than being broken by my own spiritual poverty. So step one and two, admit your spiritual poverty. Step two, mourn your sin. And when we do, Jesus offers us true comfort that we could never conjure up on our own. We try to make ourselves feel good about it. And that's, when you try to make yourself feel good about it, all you're doing is you're harboring guilt and burying that in your, in your heart, in your spirit, in your life. And one day that's going to get you. One day that, that, that's a tab that you're going to have to pay one day. But when you mourn your sin and you offer it to Jesus... He takes it away like it never happened. I sang a song earlier, talking about making this sinner holy. If you remember that song, you can, Jesus comes and makes the sinner holy. He doesn't just forgive. He's like, it's like it never happened. Your debt is gone. 
Tweet three, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What on earth does that even mean? Like, you'll inherit the earth? This is the type of verse I think that we just read past, right? We're like, blessed are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we're like, ah, be meek, because something happens. I don't know. Like, is Jesus going to show up at your next birthday party, planet wrapped up with a bow, and be like, here you go. You know, terrible present probably will throw the earth's like gravitational pull with the moon. However, all that science stuff works, probably screw that up and we'll all die. What does it mean to inherit the earth? And I'd encourage you, man, when you read weird verses like this, wrestle with them. Try, try to challenge yourself to be like, what is Jesus actually saying here? So far, we're we talking about admitting your spiritual poverty and mourning your sin so that we can come to a place where we actually need the gospel. If we're not willing to admit our spiritual poverty and mourn our sin, we don't need the gospel. Why do you need grace and forgiveness if you don't think you have anything to be forgiven for? But we recognize that when we do, we can enter the kingdom of heaven. We can be part of Jesus' kingdom here on earth. And we can be comforted by the God who rules the universe. And that's awesome. That's stuff that we think about for right now. We're just like, yes, this changes and revolutionizes my life right now. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel isn't just like today and tomorrow for the rest of your life. Here's the goodness of what's going to happen if you'll come to a place of actually repenting and following Jesus, putting your trust in him as the Lord of your life. There's something way bigger and way more eternal than that. The gospel goes on for eternity. So if you read scripture, you'll find that there's this thing talked about that at the end, Jesus is going to come again and he's actually going to fix everything. This whole issue of sin that we have, the brokenness in the world, death, all of that, will go away. Jesus will come and he will restore the earth to a perfect state, get rid of sorrow and sickness and sadness and sin. And that's a good alliteration, right? But he's going to get rid of all of that and actually allow those who have put their trust in him, those who follow him, to actually inherit the earth, to rule the earth with him, to live in the earth with him, and to be those who take care of it with him for all eternity in a state of perfect blessedness. So why is this meekness so important? Well, the gospel came to us because Jesus came in total meekness. He stepped off his throne in heaven, cloaked himself in flesh, and lived this crazy life here on earth. Didn't eat for 40 days, got persecuted, eventually gave his life. And when he gave his life on the cross, he paid the penalty for sins and offered grace and forgiveness to all of us. And hear me loud and clear, a gift of grace that's offered in that degree of meekness can't be accepted out of a place of pride and arrogance. We can't think that we can earn that. This is a gift that comes in meekness and can only be accepted in meekness. So I'd say the third step to blessedness is to meekly accept grace. Again, maybe you're like, oh, I've been following Jesus for a while. I've, I've done that before. This is, this is, when we get away from the fundamentals of what the gospel is, we start living a religion and a Christianity that's based on our own merit and our own works. Every day we need to come to a place where we're irregular, where we're just like, God, I need you. I cannot cure my own spiritual poverty. Because the thought I want to leave you with today is this, that the cure for spiritual poverty is the richness of God's grace. Whether you've been following Jesus for a hundred years or you aren't following Jesus yet, your spiritual poverty is a debt that you will never be able to pay in and of yourself. And regularly we can come to Jesus and accept the incredible gift of his grace and have our lives changed by that. And the cool thing is that when we admit our spiritual poverty, 
when we mourn our sin, when we meekly accept grace, well, then we get invited into this kingdom. We actually become part of Jesus' royal family. We receive true comfort where guilt is washed away and we're made perfect in God's sight. And we literally are promised the world. And we have these eternal promises that we can stand on. And this is the most incredible news ever. I'm going to get the communion servers and the band to come forward. We're going to take communion this morning. Maybe you know what this is about, maybe you don't. But for the past couple thousand years, at least, this could be tied to Passover in the Old Testament, but for, for the last couple thousand years, the church, the followers of Jesus, have commemorated the act of Jesus on the cross by getting together and eating food together. Here at FBC, we do it with a little cracker and a little cup of juice. And what they represent is Jesus' body that was literally ripped to shreds on the cross and his blood that poured out in an act of total meek and compassionate love and grace to say, I love you and I forgive you. I have no idea where you're at this morning. If you are someone that's never followed Jesus in your life, that you've ne- this is maybe your first time hearing about this thing called the gospel and what Jesus can do for your life. Maybe you've heard about it a few times. You're checking it out. I don't know what layer of the crowd you're in. But if you've never put your trust in Jesus, if you've never decided to follow him and to repent and accept his forgiveness of your sins and to receive the promises that come along with that, today's your day, man. Don't wait. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I'm sorry, and I want to live for you. This, this cracker and juice represent that free gift of grace that you can do nothing to earn. Maybe here you've been following Jesus for a long time and maybe your relationship with Jesus becomes routine where you just kind of do it. Maybe you check off checklist stuff, go to church, serve, read your Bible, pray. I don't know. Man, as we take communion this morning, I'd invite you to just reflect on the depths of the spiritual poverty that we come to Jesus with, but the even greater expanse of his richness, of his grace that he meets that poverty with and fills it to a point where we are made completely spiritually rich in his sight and regularly come back to that reminder.